2 Samuel chapter 12, if you'll open your Bibles there, 2 Samuel chapter 12, the title of the message today is Walking in Victory, Walking in Victory, and as you're making your way there, just by way of introduction, tell you a story about a guy who owned a building, um, and uh, unfortunately his building was just completely dilapidated, run down, uh, it had been vandalized many times, um, and uh, this guy was just trying to get rid of this building, trying to sell this building. And, and so, so the building that he had was, <clears throat> you know, people had broken in the doors, they had, they had broken all the windows, vagrants had various times lived there or vandalized the place, there had been fires that had actually been started on the property multiple times, the local fire department very well acquainted with this particular building, local police department very well acquainted with this building, and this guy was just desperate to get this albatross from around his neck, man, just desperate to get rid of this thing, so... Um, you know, he had it listed. Obviously, there wasn't a lot of interest in it. And finally, one day, this guy shows up, and he's actually very interested. And so he's nervously showing him around the property. And as he's taking this prospective buyer through, you know, he's promising, oh, I'll replace all the windows. I'll, I'll fix the structural damage. I'll you know, I'll clean up all the trash that's been dumped here and, you know, repair the burned sections and all of this stuff. Now, he doesn't have any idea how he's going to be able to do this. I mean, he hasn't been able to do this while he's owned the building and now he's talking about selling it. But whatever, he's desperate. He's making all of these. He's like, you know, a politician. He's making a bunch of promises. He has no idea how he's going to keep them. And uh, to his delight, the guy mid-sentence cuts him off. He says, hey, forget about the repairs because I don't want the building. I want the site. And the great thing about this illustration is it's a great description of, of what God has in mind for you and me. He doesn't want your building. He wants the site. He wants you. And, and the thing is, is that when we, becomes, when, when we become God's, he then will do the work. Paul said this to the Corinthian church. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And, 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 and so what happens is that when God makes us new, yes, we're a new creation in Christ. This is speaking of our salvation. That, that we, the Bible says that everyone are sinners by nature and by choice. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you believe in your heart, Jesus is the Christ. If you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And God will make you in that instant. He'll make you a new creation. You step from darkness to light. You step from death to life. And, and so there is that new creation aspect of, of, uh, of what happens in our lives. This is what Paul's talking about. But when that transpires, it does not mean that the renovation work in your life is complete. Not by a long shot. Why? Well, because we're all a work in progress. Every last one of us is a piece of work. And, and so there is that work of salvation. Yes, it's complete, but there's an ongoing work of sanctification, which is just that. It's ongoing. And so what happens is the Bible tells us that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day 
of Jesus Christ. That's speaking of that ongoing work. Yes, you're a new creation in Christ. And at the same time, there is an ongoing work that God wants to do in you and through you. To what end? Well, 2 Peter 3.18 talks about it, growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That you're saved by grace, but we also grow in grace. The gospel is not just for salvation. It certainly is. But the gospel is for day in and day out that God loves sinners. That he redeems you and that this redemptive work is an ongoing thing. And so God continues to do this work in us. He continues to to mold us and shape us into his image. And sometimes in this completion process, we take one step forward and we take two steps back. It's kind of like a diet. You know, you get on the scale on Friday and you're like, cool, I lost three pounds. And then on Saturday you get on the scale and you're like, I gained two of them back, you know. And sometimes, am I the only one, but sometimes you feel that way in your Christianity, right? You're like, I'm making progress. I'm making progress. I'm making progress. And then you wake up one day and you're like, wow, how did I get back here? You know, and it, and it just drives you crazy sometimes of what, what transpires. And so the Bible talks about this. It says, the righteous man falls seven times. Proverbs 24, 10, or Proverbs 24, 16. The righteous man falls seven times. But basically it says he gets back up again. And, and today this is what we see going on with David. That David is getting up again. He has fallen, but he's been restored by God. He's confessed his sin. God is restoring him. His home is back in order. His marriage is in order. And seemingly, his family now is in order. And now the reports are coming in from his troops that the battle as well is in order. Uh, And what we're going to look at today is David's return to victory after his fall. And maybe today you're in a place where Satan has tempted you, Satan has tricked you. Maybe you're in a place where you have, you know, alienated, separated yourself from God. Maybe you you have had a fall in your life. And what Satan does so often is on this side of the fence, he tempts you to sin. And then on that side of the fence, he heaps on the condemnation and the guilt and so on. And you get to the place where you're thinking, I can never have victory again because I've blown it. Yes, you can, because we see that is what's going on with David. And so we're going to look at David's return to victory at his fall, and we're going to see three aspects of that today. We're going to look at the timing of victory, we're going to look at the taking of victory, and we're going to look at the triumph of victory. We start out with the first point, if you're taking notes, the timing of victory. 2 Samuel chapter 12, pick it up in verse 26, and we read, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. Now this continues the war that was begun in 2 Samuel chapter 10. If you were with us as we were going through that, this is when the Ammonites and the Syrians attacked Israel. Short version is this, basically, David sent a delegation of people to the Ammonites, but they freaked out, misconstrued their intents, and they started to attack. And when they attacked the people of of Israel, these delegates that David had sent, not only did they attack, but they went and they contracted with with the Syrians because they had a stronger force. And so the the Ammonites, you know, the, the people of Ammon, they got together with Syria, and both of them attacked Israel. Um, And so what happened at that time 
David had Joab, his general, and his forces there, and Joab employed a really smart military defense, and what he did is he divided his forces, and he put Abishai in charge of one group of forces, Joab was in charge of the other group of forces, and so Joab attacked the Syrians, and and he actually defeated them. Um, and Abishai, his brother, he took the, the Ammonites and, and he attacked the Ammonites. Well, the Ammonites retreated. And so then what happened is they didn't utterly destroy them, but they got them to retreat. And so then the following spring, David sent Joab to finish off the Ammonites. He's like, these guys, they attacked, they got the Syrians, they, we got to finish the job. Joab, go take care of it. Now, this is the time that chapter 11 refers to as the, the time when kings go out to battle. And this was the start of all of David's troubles because he should have gone. He should have been at the forefront there with Joab, with his troops, but David stayed home. This is when David fell into sin with Bathsheba and all the trouble started. And so the result then, subsequently, is that Joab struggled for over a year to conquer Rabbah. Okay? They've been besieging Rabbah, but they've struggled during this time. Why? Because David should have been there, and he wasn't. And it was only after David's confession of sin and return to God that we read, now Joab fought against Rabbah. Now when? Now after David got his act together and, and repented and confessed to God, now they begin to have victory. Here's the point, and maybe you can jot it down because this is a point of application for you and me, and that is, that there was an unseen spiritual reason behind the lack of victory at Rabbah. There was an unseen spiritual reason behind the lack of victory of Joab and his troops. Turn to Joshua chapter 7. Just to the left there, a little bit. Joshua chapter 7. In... In the book of Joshua, here, just, you know, chapter, where I had you turn to chapter 7. It's preceded by chapter 6. Funny how that works. But in chapter 6, the story is of the taking of Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, you know, and that's the story, and we all, you know, hear this very famous story, right? And they marched around the walls. God caused the walls to come down. Well, what God had told the Israelites in the taking of Jericho was basically, he said, look, when you all go in there and there's a lot of treasure and plunder to be had, he basically said, look, I don't, I don't want you to take that treasure. I don't want you to take that plunder. You're gonna, I want you to leave that treasure. I want you to leave that plunder. Why? Well, because it's associated with demonic worship. And so what, what he said is, look, you, know, you don't take that Canaanite treasure for yourself. You dedicate that to me as an act of worship. Well, that didn't exactly transpire. Chapter 7, verse 1 of Joshua reads, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things, the treasure that God told them not to take for themselves. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. So how did they find out 
about God's anger burning against them because of what uh, this man had done by taking these things. And, and so how did, how did they find this out? Well, they went in next into Ai to attack the people of Ai. And they, you know, reasoning, God's with us. We've had this incredible victory of Jericho. We're not going to send in as many. We're just going to send in, you know, a handful of guys to Ai because they're, you know, they're smaller fish. And we'll, you know, go and attack them and we'll overtake them. They're the next on the hit parade. Here we go. And they have a defeat. And they they lose, you know, 30-something guys. And they're just like, what? And now they're all in retreat. Clearly, God's hand is, is now not upon them. And they don't know what Achan's done. But now, here, all they know is we've got, you know, God's forsaken us. He's abandoned us. We have defeat. So here's what Joshua does in verse 6. He starts crying out to God. It says, then Joshua tore his clothes. This is a symbol of mourning. He's going to put ashes on himself, symbol of mourning. He fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. And he and the elders of Israel and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites uh, uh, to destroy us? Why have you brought us over here at all just to destroy us? Now, this was a common lament of the people of Israel under Moses' rule when they were, during the Exodus, they would go, they would encounter hardship and then they would bellyache and complain and go, why, God, why are you doing to this? Why did we even come out at all kind of thing? And now Joshua is the the leader, the, the guy that's replaced Moses and leading all these people. He's now, you know, leading up the lament. Why have you left us out here? To destroy us, oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Verse 8, oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? I and mean, we're in full retreat now. We're the laughingstock of everybody. Verse 9, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? And so the Lord, verse 10, said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have, (coughs) excuse me, also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things. And have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. And therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves For tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. And as the story goes on, they find out that Achan took the treasure and they deal very harshly, very severely with Achan for taking the stuff that he wasn't supposed to take. Here's the deal. Here's the the point of application is that as we're going through this, Joab is not having victory in the in his battle. 
And, and so what's happening is he's going against the Ammonites. He, he's just, the, there's kind of, everything's been put on pause. There is an unseen spiritual reason behind their lack of victory. What is it? David's sin. And the point of application for you and me is that I would ask you the question, hey, do you have an area in your life where you lack victory? I want you to think about that now. Just, in fact, I would have you write down the question, take a walk with it this week. Do I have an area in my life where I lack victory, spiritually speaking? And then I would have you answer this question as you consider that. And most of us have an area where we go, well, this is an area where I struggle. Or this is an area where I don't have total victory, spiritually speaking. And so you write that area down, and then what you need to do is answer this question. Here it is. Is it possible that there is an unseen spiritual reason behind your lack of victory in that particular area? I would have you take a prayerful walk with that this week. Be ready for the answer. And God puts his finger on this and says, look, you got this buried in your life, man. That needs to come out. Well, that is the timing of the victory. Let's look now at the taking of victory. Second point, Second Samuel chapter 12, continuing in verse 27. And we read, And Joab sent messengers to David. And he said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city's water supply. Now you read in verse 1, it says that he fought against Rabbah and the people of Ammon, and he took the royal city. But now here in verse 27, he's sending the message saying, I took the water supply. So how do we reconcile the two? Here's what is going on. The city had a lower portion of the city and an upper portion of the city. And the lower portion of the city is where their water supply was. And that's what Joab took. He has yet to take the whole city, to capture the whole city, but it is now an inevitability that, that they've, they've been besieged, but now the moment, now he's got their water supply. I mean, how can you go, how long can you go without water? Like three days? Right? Humanly speaking. So it is only a matter of time. The clock is ticking before he takes the whole city. And so now he sends this message. He says, look, I've taken the city's water supply. Verse 28. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. See, because what would happen in this day and age is if you're commanding, you know, forces and you take the city, then you're going to get the credit for it and it's going to be named after you. And so I would have you in these two verses note the word took and the word taken. Word taken, those two words, uh, just different derivatives of the same word. And you'll notice it's been used four times in the first three verses. Very significant. And we're going to see in the next couple of verses, it's going to be used two more times. Took or taken. What's the, what's the point of that or what's the significance of that? Well, remember that David took something. Anybody want to tell me what David took? He took Bathsheba. And he took the life of Uriah the Hittite, her husband. David took these things. And this is exactly what the prophet Samuel had warned the nation of Israel about when they asked for a king in the first place. He goes, you sure you all want a king? Because kings are takers. And they're going to take your sons. They're going to take your daughters. They're going to take a tenth of your crops. They're going to take a tenth of your vineyards. Are you sure you all want a king? Yeah, yeah, we want a king, we want a king. Now, Joab knew what David had done. 
He knew that David had taken Bathsheba. He knew that David had taken Uriah, her husband's life. He knew this. He also knew what David hadn't done. David hadn't gone to the battle. David hadn't fulfilled his kingly responsibility by going into the battle. And listen, Joab knew these things from painful personal experience. Why? Because David's sin of both omission and commission had cost Joab something. Joab had paid the price for David's sin. Why? Well, because the timing of the battle, Joab was the guy in charge of the, of the forces going against Rabbah, going against the people of Ammon. That battle had stalled. God had taken his hand of favor off of that. So who's left holding the bag? Joab and the troops of Israel. They're the ones that are camped out. They're the ones in the adverse conditions. They're the ones away from their families. They're the ones paying the price in a lot of ways. And it's just such a picture of our sin. Some, Satan tempts us into sin and we think, you know, oh, it's just, you know, two consenting adults and what does it matter? And nobody else is hurt. Sin always hurts other people. There's always collateral damage. And so what happens then here is that there is this damage, this personal price that Joab has paid, because he's like, I'm the guy that's been out here holding the bag because your sin and God's hand of favor has been taken off of this whole endeavor. And so Joab knows all this. He is very aware that David has taken, and he's taken from him too. Time away from his family, all, all this other stuff. So Joab could easily have resented David. And as we read here, what Joab is doing, he's he's saying, hey, look, we've got this city, and I can go in and I can take this, but David, you need to come take this because you're the king. You need to bring the people with you so that they see you leading and being the king and, and doing what you're supposed to be doing. Now, Joab could have said, you know what? I'm going to take the credit. I'm going to take the town. I'm going to undermine your rule, you know? But rather than do that, he plays this role, this part in David's restoration. See, a lot of times when somebody around us fails, and especially when it costs us, when their sin costs us, our attitude a lot of times can can be, you know what? I'm just going to pile on. My attitude's going to be, well, you know what? If you wanted to lead the people and take the city well, then maybe you should have been here in the first place. Maybe you shouldn't have taken Bathsheba. Maybe you shouldn't have taken the life of Uriah the Hittite if you wanted to take this city, if you wanted to do this. And so I'll tell you what, why don't I take the city, you know? And we can become indignant with God when he does a work and bails somebody out who's cost us. We're like, what is up with that? that is, that's messed up. And I can have an axe to grind with the restoration work that God wants to do in a person because they've, their sin has cost me. And so a lot of times, I want to pile on where God wants to give grace and forgive. I'll give you a perfect example of this, the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You know the story of the prodigal son. you got some dad, he's got a couple of sons. And uh, the one son's <clears throat> out in the field just working hard for his dad. The other one shows up, he's like, hey, hey, Pop, I'll tell you what, how, how about... How about you give me my inheritance now and, and, and I blow this place and go out and find something better to do with my life than, you know, serve you. And so his dad's like, look, I love you, so okay, here's your, here's your inheritance. So he goes out 
blows his inheritance on prodigal living. And, and you know, he's just, he's just party city, man. And he's got all the friends in the world as long as, you know, the liquor's flowing and he's buying. And then he runs out. And he hits rock bottom. He winds up literally in the pig pen. And he comes to his senses as he's eating his dinner out of the pig trough and says, even my father's servants got it better than this, so I'm going to go home. So with his tail between his legs, this prodigal son comes home. Now the story is beautiful because you see this picture of this dad who clearly is watching every single day for his wayward son to come home. And there he sees his son returning and the father runs to him and lavishes him with love and throws his coat around him and throws a party for him, kills the fatted calf. And the story goes on. A lot of times we end the story right there. How beautiful this is. But if as you continue reading Jesus' story, and it's a parable, a heavenly story or earthly story with a heavenly meaning, the story goes on that Jesus, is, Jesus tells that as the party's being thrown, word reaches the other brother who is where? He's out in the field doing the father's bidding. I think of Joab. And David was off having his party with Bathsheba. Where was Joab? He was out in the field doing the father's bidding. And so word reaches this son out in the field and he comes up and he's like, this is jacked up, man. What is up with this, Dad? Like, you never killed a fatted calf for me. But there he is. You, feel, you killed his fatted calf. For, he went out and squandered all of your money. And this is like, and, and what do I do? I've been out here just faithfully serving his father's response to this older son. He said, look, everything I have is yours, son. Everything I have is yours. You've been faithfully serving me. You know, God bless you. Awesome. Listen, your brother was lost, and now he's found, and we, we can rejoice in that. And so, this is, this is the attitude that we see Joab taking. He doesn't take the attitude of the, of the older brother in, in Luke 15, the prodigal son, where he comes up mad. Rather, we see Joab take this beautiful attitude where he says to David, Hey, look, you know what? God seemed fit to restore you. Well, then this is where you belong. I'm about to take the city. I don't want the credit for this because you, you're the king and God's clearly restoring you. So come on in. Do your rightful thing. Do this. He's, he's spurring him on towards love and good deeds. He's, do, he's doing that thing that encourages him to do what he should. Now, here's the point of application for you and me. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That word consider, it's a Greek word, kataneo. I won't tell you how to spell it, I'm just telling you how to pronounce it, kataneo. And here's what it means. It means to consider attentively. It means to fix your eyes and your mind upon. And so what this is saying is that we need to consider one another attentively. That we need to fix our eyes and our minds upon one another. Why? In order to stir up love and good works. Now, here's how that works, practically speaking. The way that works is that you, as you're seeking to grow in the Lord, as you're seeking to follow the Lord, as you're seeking to serve the Lord, what it means is that as you do this, and maybe you're in a growth group, and then your buddy Joe is going to the growth group, and then all of a sudden, Joe's missing in action. And you're like, 
Anybody seen Joe? What happened to Joe? He hasn't been here for a couple of weeks, you know. Now, if you're Joe and you're in a growth group, I did not get a call from anybody in your growth group, so just know that. But, but you know, maybe the, you haven't seen Joe around. You pick up the phone. You're like, dude, you haven't been here for six weeks, man. Where, where, where are you at? Joe's like, what, you checking on me? Yeah, I am checking on you, man. Come on, this is where you're supposed to be. Now, it's this spurring on towards love and good deeds. Now, what, 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 when you're Joe, when you're on the receiving end of that, it, you, it ain't always cool. You don't like it. You know, you, 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 you're like the guy in Wizard of Oz. You're like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know? You just don't, you just keep your eyes on yourself, man. Take, the, take the, the log out of your own eye, man, before you go looking at the plank in my eye. Hey, look, he's not condemning you. He wants to spur you on towards love and good deeds. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be. This is why Hebrews 10.25, the very next verse after this, goes on to say, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. In other words, he says, look, fix your eyes and your minds on each other, spur each other on towards love and good deeds kind of deal, and hey, don't let it cause you to react when you're the one whose somebody's eyes have been fixed upon. Don't let it cause you to react by saying, well, I just ain't going to go to church anymore. You want to keep tabs on me? Well, good luck. I'm not coming back. No. See, this is what we need. This, as a body of Christ, this is what we need. This is what we need to be. We need to be those people that love each other enough that I'm going to come alongside you and you're going to come alongside of me and here's what we have. We have accountability, right? We have accountability. We have somebody who is going to help us to be committed. There, guys, I said it. Dirty word, commitment. There you have it. And we need, and we don't like Southern Californians, 2016, we do not like commitment. And as a, as a pastor of a church, I will tell you that I see very clearly people hate commitment. You talk to them and say, hey, let's do this. They're like, oh, I just don't want to be committed to anything. You know, I'll come as long as the moment, you, the moment we ask somebody to make a commitment to somebody, it's almost like it, it's the antithesis. It's the opposite effect. Like, oh, they've been, they've been here, they've been faithful, we asked to make a commitment, and they disappeared. Where'd they go? Because people freak out. It's like, you know, the equivalent of you're on your second date, and the girl says, oh, you know, I, how many kids do you think you want? Well, I think I want to be gone. Goodbye, you know? <laughs> we, in the body of Christ, we need to not be afraid of commitment. We need to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We need to be those that are going to consider one another to stir up these love and this good works and not forsake the assembling together, as is the manner of some. And of course, the purpose is to build up, not to tear down. Galatians 6.1, Paul says this. He says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Now, a lot of times we read that verse and we read it in this light. It's like, okay, we need to, I see a brother who's in sin, I need to encourage him, I need to bring him through and try and counsel him out of his sin, but I need to be careful not to get sucked into and become a partaker of his sin. And certainly that is a true reading of this and a true application. But in light of what we're studying today, it's also a true application to consider 
this in this way that, well, Joab could have become a partaker in David's sin if he would have taken the attitude that said, well, dude, you want to take stuff? Then fine, I'll take stuff too. You weren't here being faithful to your responsibilities, and so now I'm going to take the city. That would have been tempted uh, and, you know, not being in a place where he's restoring such a one in the spirit of gentleness. And so we, in the body of Christ, we need to be able to recognize that, you know what, whether we like it or not, people sin. And when they sin, and even when their sin hurts us, we need to be of the heart and of the mind that God is demonstrated that he is with David. David says, God says to David, man, I want to restore you. Man, I want to continue to use you. And, and who are we then to go, well, you know, God might want to restore you, but you hurt me, so forget it. No, we, we have to have this same heart. And so I just, I just love Joab's heart here. Hey, dude, we're going we're gonna to take the city. You better get down here. Bring the people with you. So verse 29, David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and he took it. He went, he fought against it, and he took it. And this is the final phase of David's restoration. He went back to doing what he should have done all along, leading Israel into the battle instead of remaining in Jerusalem. And listen, after such a great fall, this is easier said than done. When you have fallen in this way, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, where Satan tempts you to sin. And when Satan tempts you to sin, man, we fall into it so easily sometimes. And then Satan jumps the the, the other side of the fence, and he begins to heap on the condemnation in your life, and it is heavy condemnation. Now, the Holy Spirit of God, when we sin, will bring conviction upon us. And we have conviction. But what we have a tendency to do, and, and humanly speaking, psych, the, 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 the human psychology, and psychologists will tell you this, that when people f- do things, when they, you know, what we call sin as Christians, what we know to be sin as Christians, when people do Things that they, that they shouldn't do. They have a tendency to beat themselves up. And they have a tendency to heap upon themselves punishment. And so what you have as a Christian, if we look at David, he's fallen into sin and, and he, he shares, I mean, as you read through Psalm 51, he talks about what was going on inside him and the pain and the anguish and the, just everything that he carried with him. That, that every, he, was, he was just, he felt like a dead man walking. And, and then God shows up and does this brilliant, awesome, restorative work. And, the, and, the, and it, it's, you know, we sing a, a worship song called The Scandal of Grace. It's a scandal of grace. You died in my place so that my soul can can live. That's scandalous. But that's the grace and the mercy of God. But what we will do, here's my point. What we will do is we get in the place where we go, I'm damaged goods. It's all over for me. And it should be over for me because I suck. And so I'll I'll just take that and I'll never be the same. And a lot of people live their lives like that. And what we need to take away from this is that that's not what God does with David. And David has the guts 
the faith to be able to say, get behind me, Satan, because you know Satan was right there talking to David, like, you got no right to be doing this. You should just pass, you know, step aside. Let somebody else do it now. You've disqualified yourself. And David's like, nope, God's told me to do this. I'm going to do this. So David goes and he does it. And my question for you is if you've been in a place where the enemy has been condemning you, and you've allowed that condemnation to sidetrack you and just to believe what is already in the, the, in the human heart and mind that says, oh, I've sinned and so I'm damaged good and I can't do it. No. Repent. Receive your forgiveness in Christ. Move forward in obedience. Do what Jesus told the woman caught in adultery to do. He said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they've gone, Lord. They've all gone. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Hey, it's not a wink, wink, under the rug, dug kind of, oh, okay, your sin's cool, I'm cool with your sin. No, stop sinning, repent, but go and sin no more and start walking in obedience. And so this is what David does. Now, he blew it. He took Satan's offer. How many, how many of you are old enough to remember the, the TV show, Let's Make a Deal? Few, few, few of you here? Okay, so let's make a deal. And you've got Monty Hall. And Monty Hall is always there on the show, and, you know, and he's the consummate salesman. He walks up to you and he says, tell you what I'm going to do. Pulls out, five, I got $500 here. Fans them out in front of the person. Now I'll give you this $500 in cash, or you can have what's behind the curtain where Caramel is standing. And there's the Caramel, and she's, you know, here, here you go. You can have it. It's all yours right here. What do you want? And a lot of times people would go, uh, I'll take the curtain. And then they opened the curtain. And sometimes it was something good. And a lot of times it was like a donkey and some hay or whatever. They're like, and then the music, wah, 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 you know, you chose wrong, you know. Oh, too bad. Well, David did that. He chose the curtain where Caramel was standing and it, wah, 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 you know. But now God's got this great offer for him. What does God have for you to take? Because this is what verse 29 tells us. He gathered the people, he fought, and he took what God had for him. What does God have for you to take? What does God, what God want you to take? Man, step out, take it. Man, there is, a, there is a taking of the victory that God has for you. Which leads us to the third point, our tr- the triumph of victory. We read in verse 30. And then he, David, took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold. That's about 75 pounds of gold. That's quite a crown with precious stones. And it was set on David's head. And also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. There was an incredible crown. There was an incredible triumph. There was incredible victory. Now, it is speculated, and of course we don't know for sure, but it is speculated that the crown that David took here was a crown that belonged to a guy by the name of Og of Bashan. And Og of Bashan was an Ammonite king who was a giant, just like Goliath was. And if in fact that's true, this is a remarkable, awesome Highly symbolic thing. It's highly symbolic anyway. 
But it's just all the more cooler if it actually was belonging to Og of Bashan. Because here you go, you got a giant. This guy would have stood like Goliath, well over nine feet tall. And so that explains, you know, this huge crown, right? And it's as if God is saying to David, listen, dude, you're going to walk in victory now, buddy. And not only, listen, your first victory, it was against a giant, and your trophy was the head of Goliath. Here's, a, here's another victory for you, David, as you're going to walk in victory. It, it, now, not only do you, you, did you have the head of a giant, now you got the crown of a giant too, man. And, and, you know, it's also highly symbolic when you think about it that the crown was placed on David's head. Because, listen, you know, the, the idea, David's repentance was not just something that preserved his own crown. His, his repentance earned him an additional crown. Because had he refused Nathan the prophet, when Nathan came to him and said, dude, you're the man, you're in sin. And if David would have refused him, he never would have got this additional crown. He would have lost the crown that he had to begin with. But no, because he repented, because he held on to the Lord, now he can walk in victory and not, he retains his own crown, gains another crown on top of it. It's kind of like the parable of the, of the talents. The guy who's faithful with the talents is like, oh, you know what? He had five talents, let's give him five more. Now he's ten talents, you know? And so David has the opportunity to gain, to walk, to, to be obedient and, and to, to be crowned with an additional crown. I'm going to put a quote on the screen for you. And this will change your life if you take a walk with it. Here it is. The difference between where you are and where God wants you to be is the painful experience that you refuse to endure. I'm going to leave that up there. Maybe you want to write it down or take a picture of it. Um, again, this is, this is revolutionary if you'll take a walk with it. Because truly, where you're at right now, and where God wants you to be, so often in between me being where God wants me to be, is that there's some sort of painful experience between that and me, and I refuse to endure that painful experience. And the difference between where you are and where God wants you to be is going through that painful experience. And I would ask you the question, what painful experience of faith separates you from where God wants you to be? There is a painful experience that David had to endure. You're the man. I've sinned against the Lord. He had to own it. It was a painful experience that he had to endure. Confession, repentance, painful. But now he's where God wants him to be. You guys ever watch, you remember ABC, New, ABC Sports, the, 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 the wide, wild world, world of sports, right? They had the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And so this is the thrill of victory. Now in verse 31, we get to the agony of defeat. It says here in verse 31, And he brought out the people who were in it, speaking of the town, and he put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and he made them crosses, uh, or he made them cross over to the brickworks, and so he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. And then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now you read this in the New King James, as I just have, and it sounds like David conquered everybody and then just 
subjugated them, put them to work, right? That's what it sounds like. Maybe it reads that way in your Bible. And we want it to read that way, but the problem is, is that it really doesn't read that way. If you, if you look at this in the Hebrew, what you find is that in this instance, the King James Version of the Bible actually is a lot more close, closer to what the text is actually really saying. What actually is the text saying? Well, it's a very tough verse. And sadly, it's not saying that David subjugated the people and then put them to work. What it's saying is that David cut some, speaking of the soldiers that he conquered, he cut some of them into pieces with a saw or an axe. That he baked some of them to death in ovens. That, that he gouged some of them with iron picks. And that is what the Hebrew actually says about this next verse in verse 31. It is, it is truly the agony of defeat. Critical Hebrew scholars, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, they say, hey, listen, David put them under, meaning that the weapons were used against these people in this way. That's the accurate translation. And you go, I don't get it. Why the cruelty? Why the harshness? Well, a few reasons. If you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, when Nahash, the king of the, Amor- the, the Ammonites, was about to overtake the Israelites, this one particular town, this, this, this town of Israelites, they send message to them. They're like, hey, hey, cool, hey, can we have a truce? And what does Nahash say, the king of the Ammonites? He says to them, eh, tell you what, I'll give you a truce. But I'm going to gouge out every one of your right eyes for that truce. And they're like, Yeah, we'll get back to you on that one right there. Brutal. Amos chapter 1. We read, God curses the Ammonites. Why? Because they cut pregnant women open. These are these people. They, They cut babies out of the stomachs of the pregnant women. God curses them for that. Not only that, but they were prone to worship Molech. Molech was a god of sex and of power. And in order to worship Moloch, the way that the thing that was required was that you took a newborn baby and you went to the idol of Moloch, which was a bronze statue. It would be heated red hot and you would place the newborn baby on this red hot statue. These, these are the people that David did that to. Now we go, oh, that's horrible, that's detestable. It is. And I want you to think about it. Because you go, oh, that's barbaric. Who worships worships sex in such a way that they would destroy a, whoa, 53 million in America. David, this is horrible. The principle that's happening here in verse 31, it seems to be that of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. that says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
For whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. And if you're a student of the Bible, and at this point as you're going through this text, what should be burning in your mind right now is for you to ask the question, what about David? What about David? David is the guy who is going, and, he's, and he is, you know, they, uh, they've sown. This is the way the Ammonites have sown. They're reaping it. They're reaping it at the hands of David. He's like, hey, you want to gouge people's eyes out? I'm going to gouge your eyes out. You want to burn babies, worshiping Moloch? I'm going to burn you in ovens. You want to you cut babies out of, out of pregnant women's stomachs? I'm going to cut you up in pieces. And you go, yeah, but David, have you lost your rearview mirror? Like, because you, you, you killed some guy. You slept with the guy's wife. Wait, 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 what makes this right? Here's what makes it righteous. David repented. David repented, and here's the takeaway for us today. As you sow, you will reap. And you and I, all of us, have a question to answer. Here's the question. Am I going to reap what I have sown? Or am I going to reap what Jesus has sown? Are you going to reap what you have sown? Or are you going to reap what Jesus has sown? The question is yours because we will reap as we've sown.